The following message is part of the preaching ministry of Berlin Baptist Church in Sally, South Carolina. We pray God's richest blessings for you as you study His Word. Well, if you would open your Bibles this morning to the book of Micah in the Old Testament, we're continuing on our study verse by verse through this minor prophecy. And I will say again, it's minor because it's shorter, not because it's not important. So as you're finding your way there to Micah chapter 4, let me, uh, let me give you a little bit of introduction. This world as a whole is in turmoil, chaos everywhere. Um, ever since sin entered the picture back in the Garden of Eden, uh, the harmony of God's perfect creation was broken. And with each passing generation, more and more of our contentment and peace is lost. And I believe uh, each generation continues to search for contentment and peace in all the wrong places. We can't seem to learn from the mistakes of others, much less our our own mistakes. Uh, So we keep fulfilling those fateful words of Winston Churchill when he said, those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. So let let me make this more personal. Every week, I try. Every week, I try to live for Jesus. I try to follow Jesus. I try to be a good witness for Jesus. Every week, I try. And every week, I fall short. I fall short of God's standard. I I disappoint the one that I most want to please, God. And then to add insult to injury, I'm expected to stand before a group of people two or three times a week and encourage other people to do the same things that I'm trying to do, that I'm I'm, uh, having trouble doing those things. And so how am I supposed to encourage other people to do things that I find difficult to do myself? It's not like I'm knocking it out of the park. You know, it's not like I've got this wonderful, flawless record, batting a thousand, and I can look at everyone else. I'm so sorry you're struggling with life, you know. I'm so, it's, it's a shame that you have to deal with all that. Let me try to help you because I've got it figured out. That, that is not reality. Reality is uh, I am probably just as, if not more, messed up than anybody in this room. And so how do I stand up and try to tell someone else or encourage someone else, let me help you follow Jesus when when I'm struggling myself? How how am I supposed to do that? So let let me just tell you, it is easy to become discouraged. But the encouraging part of the passage today, as we follow the text through Micah's prophecy, you know, it's a message of judgment, but it's a message of hope. And so one thing I'm I'm continually finding in this scripture is that there is always a message of mercy and hope with God. Even in the midst of turmoil and chaos and judgment and, and trouble, There's always a message of hope. So let's look today at 
Micah chapter 4, starting in verse 6, and we're going to take this through the first sentence of chapter 5, verse 5. Here's what the Bible says. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame, I will gather the outcast, even those whom I have afflicted. I will make the lame a remnant and the outcasts a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on and forever. As for you, tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you it will come. Even the former dominion will come, the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. Now, why do you cry out loudly? Is there no king among you or has your counselor perished? That agony has gripped you like a woman in childbirth? Rise and labor to give birth, daughter of Zion, like a woman in childbirth. For now you will go out of the city, dwell in the field, and go to Babylon. But there you will be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. And now many nations have been assembled against you who say, Let her be polluted and let our eyes gloat over Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord, and they do not understand his purpose. For he's gathered them like sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, daughter of Zion, for your horn I will make iron, and your hooves I will make bronze, that you may pulverize many peoples, that you may devote to the Lord their unjust gain and their wealth to the Lord of all the earth. Now muster yourselves in troops, daughter of troops. They've laid siege against us. With a rod they will smite the judge of Israel on the cheek. But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity, Therefore he will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has borne a child. Then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel. And he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will remain, because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. This one will be our peace. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray that you will speak to our hearts clearly. Help us understand. Help us obey. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, this passage today, oddly enough, I mean, I know every time I say this, uh, most people who've been here before would probably look at their watch and think, yeah, okay, sure. Uh, but I think this is going to be more brief than normal. So I, I don't want to give you false hope, but... The, the nature of this passage, here's how, it's, um, here's how it's organized. There's two verses at the very beginning that give you some future hope. It, it tells you about promises that God's making. I'm going to do this. I will do this. I will do this. Is there's four different things that he says in the first two verses about that future hope. And then there's three different oracles that kind of describe... Hope in the midst of judgment. It's, it's really odd because, you know, Micah's prophecy is one to, to, to say to the people, hey, have you forgotten who you are? 
You belong to the Lord. You're supposed to be following Him, and you haven't. You've turned aside to idols. You've neglected all of God's words. And so here's the judgment that God's going to bring on you. And that's what it's been up to this point. And now all of a sudden, there's much more hope mixed in with the word of judgment. And so those two things are kind of coexisting in this passage. And so the first two verses show us future hope. Verses 6 and 7. The Bible says, in that day. So it's looking forward to another day to come. But then look what the Bible says. What, What God says to His people. I will assemble the lame. I will make the lame a remnant. I will gather the outcasts, even those whom I've afflicted. See, He's talking about the judgment. And He says... I've afflicted you, and you deserved it, but I'm going I'm to gather you back to myself. So there's still hope, even though they have to endure the punishment, the consequences, so to speak, of their actions. And so then he says, I will make the outcasts a strong nation. So when the Bible tells us that, when God says that to His people in verse 7, He then says, the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on and forever. So, what kind of picture is this developing for us? It reminds me of Psalm 23. Now, this is a pretty uh, well-known part of Scripture, right? Psalm 23, anybody know the first line of that? Just say it out loud. Psalm 23. The Lord is my... Right, see? Just needed a little prodding right there, that's all. But, But how does it continue? The Lord is my shepherd so I shall not want, right? So he's going to provide for me. He goes on to say, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness. Why? For his name's sake. See, the whole focus on this, it seems to be on the sheep, but it's really on the shepherd. It's really on what is this shepherd doing for his sheep? How is he relating to his sheep? And it's very, very personal. Sometimes we skip over that first phrase just because it's so familiar. But Psalm 23, 1 says, The Lord is my shepherd. Now, he might be somebody else's shepherd. He might be a lot of people's shepherd, but he's my shepherd. It's a personal relationship. And so this this picture of... A good shepherd. And verse 4, you remember verse 4? I know I'm calling it out. It's hard to remember the address sometimes when you're not in the flow of it. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Right? So uh, you still have to walk through it. Even though I walk through it, though, I will fear no evil. Why? You are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Right? So this is a great relationship between the shepherd and the sheep. And it, it reminds us who God is. And so even in Micah chapter 4 and verses 6 and 7, we get to see that same picture. I'm going to assemble you. I'm going to gather you. I'm going to reign over you from now on and forever. I'm going to be with you. I'll be your shepherd. But after the future hope, there's three oracles that take place between the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5. And here's where we really start to see this glimmer of hope take more shape. This, by the way is the part of Micah's prophecy in chapter 5 where Micah prophesies where the Messiah is going to be born. We'll get to that in just a minute. The first oracle in verses 8 through 10 
The Bible tells God's people judgment is going to come by way of captivity. So he asks the question, why are the people crying out? You don't have a king, you don't have a counselor, is no one there to encourage you? And then he says something really odd. He uses this illustration of a woman giving birth as to their pain and their agony of the judgment that's upon them. Ride and labor to give birth. You're going to go out of the city, you're going to dwell in the field, you're going to go to Babylon. See, this is the exile. You're going to have to leave where you are, your, your promised land, right? They were in God's promised land, but they disobeyed. They neglected God's word. They went and worshipped idols. And so God says, all right, you're going to have, uh, you're going to, have to leave because you can't be here if you're going to be like that. You understand what that means? Uh, you, you can't still stay in the land of promise if you're not going to follow the promises. If you're, if you're going to completely uh, neglect my word and my instruction to you, then you're going to have to go until you uh, come to your senses, so to speak. So to speak. It's, it's, it's a message of judgment, but still a message of hope because look what it says as you follow it down. In the end of verse 10, after he's just said you're going to go into Babylon and, and be in exile, then he says, but there you're going to be rescued. You're, you're going to be rescued. You're going to be redeemed from your enemies, the Bible says. The Lord will redeem you. So here's what the prophet's doing. His concern is to kind of wake some people up, almost like shake them a little bit and say, do you realize the seriousness of this situation? Do you, do you, are you just nonchalant, think it's no big deal? No, no, this is a big deal. You're, you're worshiping an idol instead of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you're not worshiping the God who brought you out of captivity and put you in the land of promise. You're worshiping some made-up idol that you've created for yourself. You've neglected the God who blessed you with all these things. And so because of that, he says, you're going to go into exile, but from there you'll be rescued. I will redeem you from there. You have to go through it, but I'm going to bring you back to the land of promise. So his concern is let me wake these people up to the true gravity of their situation. Now, I found this illustration that, that this actually happened. It's a true story from a, uh, a Bible scholar from almost 100 years ago. And uh, let, let me just read this story to you. This is from James Boyce, who is commenting on the story from a, a, a mentor of his named Donald Barnhouse. Let me t just read this story to you real quick. In the early days of Donald Barnhouse's ministry, he met a man who lived not far from the church to whom he would occasionally speak about salvation. Each time he did this, the man would just laugh him off, saying he was not the kind who needed church. He was a member of a, a local uh, men's group, like a lodge. He said if a person lived up to the high principles of that particular lodge, he would be fine. The day came when the man was stricken with a serious illness, and he was not expected to live out that day. So Barnhouse went to visit him, and a member of the man's lodge was already there on what they called the death watch. So they didn't want anybody to die alone. So they took shifts, and actually somebody just came in there and sat with him so he wouldn't be alone. So uh, the companion was sitting across the room reading a magazine. Barnhouse walked in, and then his replacement came, so another guy came in and sat down. It was a really desperate situation. So let me tell you what this guy did. He sat down beside the dying man's bedside and he said, you don't mind my staying here a few minutes and watching you, do you? 
I've always wondered what it would mean to die without Jesus. And I've known you for several years as a man who said he didn't need Jesus, but that his lodge obligations were plenty. So I just wanted to see a man come to the end of his life to see what it looks like. That's pretty offensive, right? So the stricken man looked at him like, like a wounded animal, and he said, you wouldn't mock a dying man, would you? So Barnhouse then wondered, uh, wondered out loud how he would answer when God asked him, what right do you have to enter into my holy heaven? Great tears began to run down the man's pale, wrinkled cheeks. He looked back in agonized silence. So quickly, Donald Barnhouse again explained to him the way of salvation through faith in Christ. The man replied that his mother had taught him those things as a child, but he had abandoned them. Then in those moments, at the very end of his life, the man came back to the truth and to faith in God. He believed, he prayed, and soon after that, he asked the members of his family to be brought in so he could tell them his testimony. And then he asked that his story would be told at his funeral, which was just a few days later. Micah uses this same shock tactic when he mocks these people for their unbelief. And, and it's not out of cruelty, but he's, he's speaking out of love because he wants the people to wake up before it's everlasting too late. If you don't understand the situation you're in, you might not understand the measures that must be taken to make it better. So that's the message of this first oracle. The second one is in verses 11 through 13, at the end of chapter 4. And this time, the Bible says that many nations are assembled against God's people. And they're gloating over God's people. They say, let her be polluted. You see in verse 11, they gloat over Zion. But the hope then comes in verse 12. They don't know the thoughts of the Lord. Have you ever thought, when you've looked at a situation, well, I can see what's going to happen here. I bet I can predict this is how this is going to turn out. You ever thought that? You ever been wrong? Nobody's ever been... Well, okay. I, I'm not one. I've, I've been wrong. been wrong plenty of times. I've been wrong already today uh, a few times. So these folks just thought they understood what was going to happen because they were looking at their surroundings. Well, look what's happening to God's people. Yes, they're... Uh, they're just done for. They're never going to be redeemed now. They're just they're gone for good. But this is maybe one of the most encouraging verses in chapter 4, verse 12. They don't know the thoughts of the Lord. They don't understand His purpose. He has gathered them like sheaves to the threshing floor. So there's still hope. God has gathered the enemies to be destroyed. He says there's lots of people gathered around you, enemies, but I'm going to take care of them. See, God always has a plan. And by the way, God's plan is always far better than ours. We always think we've got a good plan. We think we know everything. We think we can figure it out. That's not the case. God really does have unlimited knowledge and unlimited power. And He's always good even when we don't see it. And so God is 
gathering the enemies like sheaves to the threshing floor. He's going to do away with them. It says they will pulverize the enemy. I love that word. You see that? They will pulverize the men. Uh, verse 13, the enemy, many peoples, devote to the Lord their unjust gain. See, people were uh, gaining wealth by uh, illegal and inappropriate means, and so all that was going to be given back to its rightful place, to the Lord's purposes. And so that's the plan of God. When, when He says, you don't know the thoughts of the Lord, you don't understand His purpose... He's going to handle this. Because remember, right at the very beginning, he said, you're going into exile, but you'll be rescued. I'll redeem you from there. And so all this wealth is going to be then offered to God. Finally, the third oracle. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, the first sentence of, of verse 5. This is where we see the ultimate hope revealed in Micah's prophecy. The enemies of God... Uh, the enemies of his people are going to do some damage. You see how it starts out. They've laid a siege against us. They're going to smite the judge of Israel on the cheek. So there's going to be some damage done. But it's not going to be the conclusion of the matter because when you read God's Word, there are so many places. I I'm thinking of uh, Romans, uh, first and foremost, as an example. There's so many places in the Bible where if you read and then you stop, you could be in a bad mood, right? If you don't read the full context, you don't keep reading, you could read uh, Romans chapter 3, verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Well, if you stop there, that's bad news. You could read Romans 6, verse 23, the wages of sin is death. If you stop there, that's bad news. But both of those verses end with the glory of God. The grace of God, the love of God, the forgiveness of God, salvation. See, if you stop reading before you've read the whole story, then you could be under a false uh, conclusion. So here, the enemies of God's people are going to do some damage, you see, in verse 1. But look at verse 2. But as for you, and then he singles out the city, Bethlehem. Anybody remember anything historical that really happened in Bethlehem that was good? Yeah, about, you know, a couple thousand years ago. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and that was no accident. Because if you remember the story, there was a census being taken. So see, they weren't in Bethlehem, but they had to travel to Bethlehem. And they got right where God put them for Jesus to be born. So here... In Micah's prophecy, Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, As for you, Bethlehem, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one. Now look in your Bible. The word one. Is it a capital O? You know why? That's Jesus. One will go forth for me. Capital M. God, the Father. One will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. How do we know that's Jesus? We'll keep reading. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. You know why it's from eternity? Because Jesus is God. <laughs> it's just it's right there. You don't have to make it up. Therefore he'll give them up until the time when she who is in labor has born a child. Then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel. Look at verse 4. He will arise 
and shepherd His flock. In the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord His God, they will remain because at that time He will be great to the ends of the earth. That's my king right there. He will be great to the ends of the earth. There's no end to His dominion and His authority and His power. No end. It's everlasting and unlimited. And this is just yet another place in the Old Testament points us to Jesus. It's all right here. Now, that would be a good place to stop except for in the Hebrew Old Testament, the paragraph actually stops after the next sentence, which is the first line in chapter 5. Why they split that up that way, who knows. But the first sentence in chapter 5, this one, this one, which one? Jesus, this one will be our peace. And do you remember how we started this? Harmony in God's perfect creation has been broken. Every generation searches for peace and contentment. We can't find it, no matter where we look. Look at chapter 5, um, verse 5, and the first sentence. This one, Jesus, is our peace. Jesus has always been. When, when you look at the other prophecies in the Old Testament and then the confirmation in the New Testament. I mean, uh, I'll just pick out one. One that's pretty well known. Do you remember what Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7? A child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. The government will be upon his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. What a coincidence. Not really. You think, okay, well how do we know these things actually happen? Glad you asked that question. If you go over to Matthew chapter 2, you don't have to turn there if you, if you don't want to. I'll just tell you the reference and I'll read it to you. Matthew chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. This is when Herod was trying to find out where this alleged Messiah was going to be born. And he was asking the Magi. Do you remember the story? Do you know what they told him? They quoted Micah. They quoted this passage. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet, You, Bethlehem, land of Judah, by no means least among the leaders of Judah, out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. It's just a confirmation of what we already know to have happened. See, Jesus is and will always be our peace. There's other references in the New Testament if you're interested. And you, go to, you could go to John chapter 10 and verse 11 and you could see, uh, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That's Jesus speaking. You want real peace? See, all, all these different pieces of the puzzle. See, this book, I want you to know this if you didn't know it before. Uh, this book is not uh, a, a list of independent stories. This is one 
full, complete, whole Word of God from the beginning to the end. It's not 66 different books that have no bearing on one another. It's all one big, wonderful story. And so when you see things in the Old Testament, you can read their fulfillment in the New Testament. And so that's why we put it all together and read it in its context and understand that in John chapter 10 and verses 14 and 15, Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd and I know my own, and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. See, that's a good shepherd. That's a good shepherd. St. Augustine, one of our early church fathers, like 3rd, 4th century, he wrote these words. You move us to delight in praising you, O God, for you have formed us for yourself, and our hearts are restless till they find rest in you. What a wonderful, beautiful statement. We get to the end of this particular passage in Micah, and we're talking about peace coming out of chaos and turmoil being put away and finding true peace only in Christ. You know, the New Testament speaks about that very thing over and over and over again in so many different places. But the one that came to my mind that I thought would be a fitting conclusion to today is 2 Corinthians chapter 12 in verses 9 and 10. Paul had been given a thorn in his flesh. He wanted it to be removed. He pleaded with God, the Bible says, three times, please take this away from me. Please take this away from me. You know what God said? My grace is sufficient. My grace is sufficient. See, sooner or later, something's going to happen in our lives and it's going to help us realize this one important truth. Real peace and contentment is only found in a relationship with Jesus Christ. There's, there's no other place to go. That's why when we search far and wide across this earth and we try to fill that spot with something else, it never works because Jesus is the only one. It's a God-shaped hole. You can't fill it with something other than God. And that's what Jesus is trying so hard to show us in His Word. It's only when we embrace our weakness that we can fully experience God's power. That was the point of 2 Corinthians 12. And Paul eventually had a changed perspective because he said, well, from now on, I'm going to rejoice in my weaknesses and my hardships and my challenges and my trials because he said, uh, this is the end of verse 10, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. When I realize I need God to do it because I can't do it on my own, that's when the power of Christ will rest on me. And, and here's the conclusion of this text today. Ready? This, this might be worth noting. It's just one sentence. Jesus is always enough. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message from God's Word. For more information on Berlin Baptist Church, we invite you to explore our website at www.berlinchurchsc.org. 